0: Chapters twenty two and twenty three of The Interrupted Kiss by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty two: Two Recognitions. Mister Earle was destined, before the night was out, to realize that the promise he had made Miss Morris was in all respects a rash one. He had undertaken to give her a full, true, and particular account of all that took place that night. The story of what really did occur he never told to any one. He had assured her also that his whole expenditure should not exceed a sovereign. It was borne in upon him how hasty he had been in giving that assurance when the waiter brought his dinner. The change he had out of his sovereign when that was settled was so inconsiderable that it was plain, if he meant to adhere to what he had said, his evening's amusement was already finished. He rubbed his chin in his perplexity. Seventeen and six pence for dinner and eighteen pence for the waiter leaves one bob. If Susan knew... I wonder how long it is since I spent nineteen shillings on a dinner. It's put such heart in me that I have a mind to spend another sovereign on a seat, if there's a theatre in town which has the impudence to ask as much. Not that I'm sure that I feel equal to a theatre. It sounds risky. Knowing as little of theatres as I do, I may find myself patronizing a play guaranteed to draw your heart out of your mouth and to drown you in your own tears. Cheerful that would be. I DON'T PROPOSE TO BANG A SECOND SOVEREIGN ON AN ENTERTAINMENT OF THAT ENLIVENING DESCRIPTION. I THINK IT WOULD BE SAFER TO MAKE IT A MUSIC HALL. HE MADE IT A MUSIC HALL, SO POPULAR A ONE THAT WHEN HE ARRIVED EVERY SEAT WAS OCCUPIED. HE HAD TO STAND, LEANING AGAINST THE RAILING WHICH RAN RIGHT ROUND THE STALLS. HIS PARTICULAR STANDING PLACE WAS RIGHT AT THE END OF THIS BARRIER, ON ONE SIDE OF THE HOUSE, BUT COMPARATIVELY CLOSE TO THE STAGE. NOT A BAD POINT OF VANTAGE. Soon after he had taken up his stand, a lady came on the stage in abbreviated skirts, which were of a bright scarlet hue, scarlet stockings, scarlet shoes, scarlet hat, with hair beneath it, which was of a tint only one degree less vivid than the rest of her attire. Glancing at his programme to see who she was, he found that her name was given, with that brevity which marks the music-hall programme as Sally Scarlet. She had come on from the side of the stage, which was opposite to him. As she entered, she glanced rapidly round the house, beginning with that part of it in which he was. He had a feeling that she had singled out his face from among all the others, that her eyes had rested on him for an appreciable part of a second before they travelled onwards. He might have been mistaken, yet it seemed to him that in them had not only been a light of recognition, but something which almost amounted to a shock of startled surprise. The whole episode lasted only three or four seconds. She had bowed, smiled, and commenced to sing before he had begun to realize what sort of person she actually was. He must have been mistaken. Probably it was a trick of the ladies to convey to male members of her audience the impression that there was something in her glance which had been meant especially for them. He certainly had never seen her before, of that he was convinced. He was not likely to have forgotten an even casual encounter with a lady of such a striking personality. And yet as she made her exit at the end of her first song, there undoubtedly did seem to be something significant in her eyes as they came his way. It was almost as if she had signaled to him as she left the stage. Had he been a man of a different type, he might have construed her glance as a compliment to himself, but he was not that kind of man. He was merely mildly amused at the idea that the lady might have mistaken him for somebody else. While the audience was waiting for her to sing her second song, a voice addressed him from behind, in what struck him as a whisper of almost uncanny clearness-it was so faint, yet so audible: "Very nice Sally Scarlett, ain't she, Mister Earle?" Turning to learn who was the owner of the singular voice who was acquainted with his name, he saw that at his back was an undersized man, with a hairless face and unpleasant red eyes. He continued his appreciation of the lady; "'A one I call her, both as a woman and an artiste, Mr. Earle. Rupert Earle eyed him keenly. Not only was he convinced that the man was a stranger, and that he had never seen him before, but he had an instinctive feeling that he would just as soon never see him again. "'You appear to know my name, sir, but I don't know who you are.' "'Never mind who I am, Mr. Earle. not just at the moment. I may take the liberty of introducing myself perhaps some other time.' "'But just now who I am don't matter in the least. "'I notice that Sally Scarlet, she recognizes you, Mr. Earle. "'Shows how you do stand out in a crowd. "'Twigged you the moment she came on, did she? "'Hasn't she got eyes? "'Here she is again. "'Bet you a drink, Mr. Earl, that the first thing she does is look your way.' "'If Mr. Earle had accepted the man's bet, he would have lost. "'The lady came on more slowly the second time.' Not only did she stare at him directly she came on, but she continued to stare until she took up her position in the center of the stage. So marked was the direction of her glance that many people looked round to see for whom it was intended. Rupert Earle was conscious of curious mental confusion. What on earth did the woman mean by favoring him with her attention in that conspicuous fashion? He was persuaded that he had never seen her before or heard her name. He seemed to be better known than he supposed. It appeared that that red-eyed stranger not only knew him, but took the red-headed performer's recognition of him as a matter of course. What the deuce did it mean? He faced about to interrogate the fellow, to find that he had vanished, and that his place had been taken by one of the gorgeous attendants, who addressed him in a tone of confidential deference. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but is your name Mr. Rupert Earl?' "'It is. Why do you ask?' "'Then perhaps this note's for you, sir.' THE ATTENDANT HANDED HIM AN ENVELOPE ON WHICH WAS INSCRIBED IN A DECIDEDLY DOUBTFUL HANDWRITING. RUPERT EARLE, ESQUIRE. SINCE IT IS ADDRESSED TO ME, I PRESUME IT IS, BUT I DON'T KNOW THIS WRITING. WHO IS IT FROM? THAT'S MORE THAN I CAN TELL YOU, SIR. IT WAS SENT ROUND TO ME FROM BEHIND WITH INSTRUCTIONS THAT YOU WAS TO HAVE IT AT ONCE. THE ATTENDANT WITHDREW. MR. EARLE SAW THAT ACROSS ONE CORNER OF THE ENVELOPE WAS THE WORD IMMEDIATE. He opened it with a feeling that it looked as if he was going to have more entertainment than he had bargained for, a feeling which was strongly increased when he had read the note which it contained. "'Dear Mr. Earle, please come round and meet me at the stage door directly you get this. There is something I want to say to you most important. For goodness' sake, don't think because you don't know me I want to have a game with you. God knows it isn't so. There is someone you know very well I want to talk to you about who is in an awful hole.' So, for God's sake, come. Yours truly, Sally Scarlett. Just as he had read this, as it seemed to him surprising effusion, he was addressed in the same odd whispering voice which had reached his ears before. So Sally Scarlet's wrote you a note, has she, Mr. Earle? Some men do have the luck. Spinning round, he found that the stranger was again at his back. What the devil do you mean, sir, by speaking like that to me? Who are you? WHAT CONCERN ARE MY AFFAIRS OF YOURS? Mr. Earle? had put his question in a tone which was very much above a whisper. Many of the spectators turned to see who was disturbing the performance by speaking in such a manner. Someone said, HUSH! The stranger, as if alarmed at the other's tone and manner, evinced a lively inclination to withdraw himself from the immediate neighborhood. Mr. Earle watched him until he had disappeared in the crowd of promenaders, then returned to the consideration of the note with the result that within sixty seconds of Miss Scarlett's having made her final exit from the stage he quitted the building. Having found the stage door with some little difficulty, he was informed by the janitor that to the best of his knowledge and belief the lady was changing, and that if he wished to see her he would have to wait where he was. He had been waiting perhaps five minutes when a female figure came quickly through the swing door, which he only recognized as that of the gorgeous lady whom he had just seen upon the stage by the radiant color of her hair. "'At sight of him she held out both her hands. "'So you have come. "'Thank goodness, if you only knew him "'what a palpitation I have been for fear you wouldn't.' "'Almost before he knew it he had her hands in his "'and was looking down at her with a quizzical smile. "'It's very good of you to be so anxious to see me, "'but I'm afraid.' "'She cut him ruthlessly short. "'Oh, I know. I'll explain all about it.' "'She led the way into the street.' That's my last turn. Now I'm free, and it's just as well I am. I don't think I could do another one tonight. I expect you thought I was pretty rotten. On the contrary, I thought you were excellent, only... Yes, I know. I put you in a flurry by the way I looked at you. I can tell you that the sight of you flurried me, put me clean off my business. I've hit em every time till tonight, so that they'd hardly let me go. But the sight of you standing there queered me. I couldn't get at them anyhow. COMPARED TO WHAT I HAVE BEEN OTHER NIGHTS, I WAS A FROST. BUT I DON'T SEE. YOU WILL WHEN I TELL YOU. LET'S GO SOMEWHERE WHERE WE CAN HAVE A DRINK. I FEEL THAT IF I DON'T HAVE SOMETHING, I SHAN'T LAST OUT. THERE'S A QUIET PLACE OVER THE ROAD. YOU COME ALONG WITH ME. THE IMPETUOUS SMALL PERSON STEPPED BRISKLY ACROSS THE ROAD. IT SEEMED TO HIM THAT HE HAD NO ALTERNATIVE BUT TO GO WITH HER. SHE LED THE WAY INTO WHAT SEEMED TO BE A SMALL ITALIAN RESTAURANT, WHICH AT THAT HOUR WAS NEARLY DESERTED. She seated herself at a marble-topped table which was round a corner in a sort of alcove, where, to all intents and purposes, they were practically alone. "'Black coffee for me,' she announced, with a splash of brandy. "'And, waiter, let the coffee be as strong as you can make it. I want it to be a real old pick-me-up.' Mr. Earle gave a similar order for himself. When the refreshments came, she began to talk. RESTING HER ELBOWS ON THE TABLE AND LEANING OVER IT SO THAT IT SHOULD NOT BE NECESSARY TO SPEAK MUCH ABOVE A WHISPER. HE THOUGHT THAT NOW SHE HAD GOT HER SPLENDORS OFF SHE WAS PRETTIER THAN HE HAD SUPPOSED, WITH ABOUT HER A TOUCH OF THE GAMIN WHICH WAS NOT UNPLEASING. SHE WAS SUCH A THING OF LIFE AND ENERGY. HE FELT SURE OF COURAGE, TOO. WHEN SHE WAS MOST SERIOUS, AND PRESENTLY SHE CAME NEAR TO TRAGEDY. There was still the suspicion of a smile about the corners of her lips and in her eyes, as if she were used to fight with fate that she had learned to laugh at him, although he did his worst. I expect you thought it was like my cheek to stare at you like that and to send you such a note, and I dare say that now you're wondering what my game is. I don't suppose you remember ever having seen me before? I certainly cannot believe that I should have forgotten you if I had. Well, I've seen you, more than once, or I shouldn't have known you again, should I? The last time I saw you was at Branksome. At Branksome? When you were giving evidence at the inquest on old Mister Culver. (He started, for some reason he found it difficult to associate this lively young lady with such an occasion.) Another time I saw you in the Timberham woods, when I believe you'd been having a talk with Miss Graham. His surprise grew greater. He stared at her, as if he were striving to recall her features to his memory; Miss Scarlet, you undoubtedly have an advantage over me. I don't remember having seen you on either of those occasions. I dare say not. I dare say you didn't see me. You were thinking of other things. There was another time I saw you, and it's because of that time I sent you that note asking you to come and have this talk. What time was that? I saw you talking to my boy. Your boy? I don't mean my son, bless the man. I mean Walter Palgrave. Walter Palgrave? Shh! Not so loud. You don't want to shout it out anywhere, especially in a place like this, where for all you know walls have ears. Now do you begin to understand? I'm afraid I don't. You're a friend of his. I don't know that I can quite say that. An acquaintance, perhaps, would be the better word. You see, he has always been a rich man, and I have always been a very poor one. I know he's told me all about it. There isn't much he hasn't told me, More than he thinks, poor dear. I can tell you this. He thinks a lot of you. That's very good of him. If there's a poorer man in London than he is now, I'm sorry for him. You know, he's wanted. You mean for... Yes, don't say it. The police are looking for him all over the shop. A nice time they've given me. Given you? Yes, given me. He's... he's in hiding at my place. Good God, you don't mean it. This time he was genuinely startled. So completely was he taken aback that, in his agitation, he knocked his cup and saucer with a clatter off the table onto the floor. The waiter came hurrying to pick up the ruins. The lady waited for another cup of coffee to be brought before she spoke again. "'For gracious sake, don't go calling attention to us like that. You never can tell who may be about. If you can't keep a better hold of yourself than that, I shan't dare to tell you anything, and heaven knows I want to badly enough.' The way you jumped was enough to break the chair. I'm very sorry, but you did take me so wholly unawares. Did you really mean what you said? Of course I did. I almost wish I didn't. I've been hiding him ever since. The strain of it's getting to be too much. I've tried to get him to America, Australia, anywhere, if only for a while. He could have done it if he liked, but not he. He won't budge. "'I did think that now he's got no money of his own "'he'd be reasonable and have some of mine. "'Goodness knows I've had enough of his, but he won't. "'Not a penny. "'As for running away with my money, as he calls it, "'he says he'll see me. "'Well, he won't. "'I wish you'd come and talk to him.' "'I will, with pleasure.' "'With a spontaneous gesture, she laid her hands on his. "'I knew you would. "'I knew you were that sort. "'I'd of laid odds you were a trump.' WHAT HE WANTS IS A FRIEND, A GENTLEMAN LIKE HIMSELF. HE'LL LISTEN TO YOU. HE WON'T TO ME. IF HE DON'T TAKE CARE, THE DRINK WILL DO FOR HIM. YOU KNOW WHAT A WELL-PLUCKED ONE HE USED TO BE. SOMETIMES HE'S OUT OF HIS MIND WITH FEAR. OF WHAT? YOU KNOW. BUT HE'S INNOCENT. IS HE? ARE YOU SURE? AREN'T YOU? I, I'D LIKE TO BE. YOU COME AND TALK TO HIM, AND TELL ME WHAT YOU THINK. BUT I KNOW HE'S INNOCENT. "'Do you? You think you know, but I fancy you don't know so much as you think you do. "'If I was sure he were innocent, I'd get him to give himself up to the police tomorrow. "'That's what he ought to have done long ago. "'But supposing he's guilty, what then? "'If the police get hold of him, what then?' "'The man saw something in the woman's eyes which caused an involuntary shudder to go all over him. "'You're representing to me as a possibility a thing which seems to me an impossibility.' "'I don't know what ground you have to go upon. "'You come and talk to him.' "'But,' he drew a long breath, "'if what you hint is true, "'then the world's turned upside down, "'and God help us all. "'I don't say either one thing or the other, "'mind that. "'I don't want to say anything, only "'you come and talk to him and tell me what you think. "'When can I come? "'Can I come at once? "'I'll take you straight to him when we leave here, "'only let's take care that we're not followed.' I'VE GOT TO THAT POINT THAT SOMETIMES I FEEL AS IF THERE WERE WATCHERS EVERYWHERE. CHAPTER Twenty Three, WALTER PALGRAVE Miss Scarlet took him to a part of town with which he was unfamiliar. Right across London by devious ways, with frequent changes by the way, from cab to tram, from tram to bus, from bus again to tram, then for quite a walk with constant turnings at the end. Had her wish been to throw him off the scent, to lead him he knew not where, she could scarcely have managed better. If they had been followed, it must have been by an invisible spy. Beyond the faintest shadow of a doubt, no visible creature had dogged their steps. He had a sort of general impression that she had brought him somewhere in the neighborhood of Blackheath. He would have been hard put to it to explain how he had arrived at that impression, but he had. She finally stopped at a gate led into a brick wall in what, so far as he was able to judge in the imperfect light, seemed a lane rather than a London street. She paused for a moment to look about her. There certainly was no one in sight, or within sound. The place seemed to be as remote as if it had been in the heart of the country. Then suddenly he saw that she had a key in her hand with which she was unlocking the gate. Quick, she said, get in. He passed through the gate. Following instantly she closed it behind her. IT SHUT WITH A CLICK. THANK GOODNESS I DON'T THINK ANYONE SAW US THAT TIME. THE WORDS WERE GASPED RATHER THAN SPOKEN. HE WAS NEARLY MOVED TO LAUGHTER. MY DEAR, MISS SCARLET, I'M QUITE SURE THAT NO ONE SAW US. I DON'T KNOW WHERE YOU'VE BROUGHT ME, BUT IT SEEMS AS IF WE ARE A HUNDRED MILES FROM ANYWHERE. I SHOULD JUDGE THAT THERE WASN'T A HUMAN BEING WITHIN A MILE. THAT'S ALL YOU KNOW. WITHIN THAT DISTANCE THERE ARE THOUSANDS. THEY'RE ALL ROUND US. COME QUIETLY. Perhaps he's gone to bed. He sometimes has at this time of night. The words suggested to his mind a singular vista. Is he in the house all alone? He is. But would you mind not asking any questions? By that, what I mean to say is that you can ask him as many questions as you like, but don't ask me. He had grown more and more to realize, as they had come along, that the situation was at once much more singular and much more delicate than he had first supposed, It hardly needed her request to drive that conviction further home. Moving towards the house, which stood in the center of what seemed to be a small garden, she again gained ingress by means of a key. No sooner had she done so than a masculine voice exclaimed, "'Who's there? Who the devil's there?' A door was opened at the back through which a light came streaming, the only light which so far had been seen about the place. From without the building had seemed to be in all darkness.' Miss Scarlet replied in tones which were almost suspiciously cheerful. "'It's all right, old man. It's only me and a friend.' "'A friend? What friend? I haven't a friend. Who's that you've brought with you?' The lady touched Mr. Earle on the elbow. Taking the hint, that gentleman went forward. "'Hello, Palgrave. Miss Scarlet's been good enough to give me a chance of looking you up. I can't tell you how glad I am to see you again.' "'Glad to see me again? Who the devil?' The speaker drew back into the lighted room. Earl, following, the other when he saw who he was, broke into a shout of welcome. Why, Earl, my dear old chap, why, you crack-brained beggar, I'm as glad to see you as if you were old John Culver risen from the grave. And how's the engine? Still burning holes in your pockets? Still going to make your fortune when they've laid you in a pauper's grave? Earl laughed, though he felt in anything but a laughing mood when he saw the man in front of him. The Walter Palgrave he had known had been one of the smartest and best-dressed men in town, who would have deemed his reputation lost had a single item of his attire been below the highest standard of the current taste. This person was an unkempt, half-dressed vagabond, whose head looked as if it had not been touched by a hairbrush for a week or by a barber for six months, on whose face was a fortnight's stubble who was clad in what had apparently once been a suit of pajamas, the jacket of which he wore open, disclosing an ancient flannel shirt which was unbuttoned at the neck. Mr. Earle made an effort to conceal what he felt at this spectacle that Wylam Dandy presented and hoped that he succeeded. He made what he was aware was a sufficiently banal remark, having a feeling that this was an occasion on which the more banality he could get into the air the better, since it was already overcharged with the abnormal. "'How's the world been using you?' Using me? Damn it, man, can't you see how it's been using me? Haven't you eyes in your head? If it hadn't been for Sally there, they'd have had quicklime on me long ago. By the way, I've been trying to find out if they do use lime for them nowadays. Can you tell me? Palgrave, old man, you always were a bit of an ass. Thank you for nothing. What price you? With your crackpot engine. But I never thought you could be such an ass as this upon my Sam. I didn't. Who cares what you thought? Have a drink. No, thank you. I don't want a drink, and you don't either. Reaching over the table, Rupert Earle snatched up a bottle which the other was moving. Palgrave glared at him in angry resentment. Mr. Earle, put that down. Don't you imagine you can take liberties with me? To think that you should play the fool like this. I always suspected that you had a screw loose, but I did not suppose you were an absolute sotter. Masquerading in that rig out as if you were a half baked clown at a fair and hiding yourself like a cur in a kennel. Mr Earl, I killed John Culver, and if you don't take care You did not kill John Culver. Pray, how do you know? Because I was sober and you weren't That's it, I was drunk. If I hadn't been drunk I should not have killed him. I admit it. But does that alter the fact that I dispose of the poor dear old gentleman? That may be one of the cases in which killing's no murder, though I doubt it, but it's killing. How did you kill him? What a question to expect a man to answer. Are you a judge of the last instance? Am I before the last tribunal of which all men must lay their secrets bare? You make one assertion, I make another. I can give you chapter and verse for mine. I merely ask if you can do the same. I can? Then do it. Your tone's peremptory. But to oblige you, sir, I will even go so far. You remember that night? Perfectly, every moment of it. How we went up to our rooms with the spoil. I know you went into yours because I shut the door at your request when you were in. And directly afterwards I came out of it again. I wanted a drink. You'd had too much already. There's the point. When I've had too much, I can never have enough. I remembered that there was drink in the billiard room. I went and got it. "'I emptied all the whisky there was in one decanter "'and all the brandy there was in another. "'I thought it would be a lark to mix them, so I did. "'Of that I have a distinct recollection. "'Afterwards I admit there comes a blur.' "'Mr. Earle recalled what Tyrell the butler had said "'about his having found the two decanters empty in the morning. "'So this was the explanation. "'Palgrave went on half jauntily, half savagely, "'as if he were possessed by some mocking demon.' As, I suppose, I'd drunk inside five minutes a bottle of whiskey and brandy mixed neat, it wasn't strange that there came a blur. A man once told me I'd what he called a fine liquid capacity, but that was beyond even me. My own impression is that for, say, half an hour after I'd drunk that big drink, I was stark staring mad. It was during that half hour it happened. THE NEXT THING I CLEARLY RECOLLECT IS FINDING MYSELF IN THE WOOD WITH MY ARMS FULL OF PAPERS AND NO HAT ON, AND WONDERING HOW THE DEVIL I'D GOT THERE. WHAT BROUGHT ME TO SUDDEN CONSCIOUSNESS I HAVE NO IDEA. IT DIDN'T LAST LONG. I BELIEVE THAT IMMEDIATELY AFTERWARDS I WAS AS DRUNK AS EVER. THE DICKENS ONLY KNOWS HOW. ULTIMATELY I GOT WHERE I DID. THERE'S A SAYING THAT PROVIDENCE WATCHES OVER CHILDREN AND DRUNKEN MEN. I PROVED THE latter HALF OF IT THAT NIGHT. IN THE MORNING I UNDERSTOOD. "'What do you mean by you understood? "'I should have thought that in the morning "'you'd have had such a head on you "'that you weren't in a fit state to understand anything. "'In one sense that was so, "'but when I heard that old Culver was dead, "'I knew I'd killed him. "'Man, you're no nearer answering my question now "'than you were at the beginning. "'How do you know you killed him?' "'It's not easy to make you understand. "'Don't take it for granted "'that I'm so much duller than the average man. "'Try.' That morning I had a sort of dim vision in which I saw myself crouching on the library floor, picking up papers, and old Culver coming in and making a rush at me. I sprang up with a yell. I'm convinced it will be found, I yelled, and hit him with something I snatched up from the floor. Then, grabbing up the papers anyhow, somehow I got through a window and went scurrying through the night. The first morning the vision was very dim, but with continued repetition it has grown clearer and clearer. "'Until now, if I were set the task, "'I would reconstruct the crime to the satisfaction "'even of a French juge de paix. "'You must forgive my speaking plainly, "'but I'm convinced that you were merely the victim "'of a drunkard's imagination. "'I'll forgive the plainness, but why do you say that? "'You were in such a state of mind "'that you were ready to believe anything of yourself. "'If I'd been killed, you'd have been perfectly willing "'to claim the credit of that, "'even if I'd fallen onto my head from a sixth-floor window.' I should say that the morning after a man had drunk half a bottle of whiskey and half a bottle of brandy-mixed neat, practically at one big swallow, nothing would content him but the conviction that he was a monster of wickedness. And, as you seem to have stuck to the same prescription ever since, no wonder the convictions kept on growing. I hope you're right. I wish I could believe it. Then I shouldn't so often feel at night that John Culver's fingers were fitting a rope about my neck. There you are. Delirious." If you don't swear off before long, you'll be feeling sure that you killed ten John Culvers. You must always bear in mind that old Culver was killed, and if I didn't kill him, who did? Great Scott, man, what logic! I might as well say if I didn't kill him, who did? You've not been found guilty of murder. I have. By a coroner's jury. Who cares for a coroner's jury? If you'd only seen those addle-headed young men, and that gem of a coroner. I felt like kicking him myself. Anyhow, you've only your ridiculous behavior to thank. If you hadn't been raving drunk, you'd never have left the house. If you hadn't had such a head in the morning, you'd have come straight back, or you'd have come back at the earliest possible moment. In short, you'd have done anything but what you have done, behaved like a fool and a coward. Thanks, you're a candid friend. I can't help it. Perhaps the cold truth will do you good. YOU'VE BEEN LIVING IN A FEVERED ATMOSPHERE OF ALCOHOLIC LIES. QUITE A PHRASE. BRAVO, MR. EARLE. NOW WHAT DO YOU PROPOSE I SHOULD DO? GIVE MYSELF UP TO THE POLICE? I SHALL BE FOUND GUILTY BY TWELVE CLEAR-HEADED YOUNG MEN DIRECTED BY A JUDGE OF A SIZE, IF I DO, TO A CERTAINTY. I SHALL CONVICT MYSELF OUT OF MY OWN MOUTH, BECAUSE IF I ASK TO PLEAD I SHALL SAY GUILTY. I HAVEN'T EVEN ENOUGH COURAGE LEFT TO TELL A LIE AT SO CRUCIAL A MOMENT. "'Then if that's the attitude you're going to take up, "'it seems that the only thing to be done "'is to find the actual criminal. "'I trust that you may find him "'and that he mayn't be me. "'What a weight you'll lift off my soul "'if you can prove that I've only been the victim "'of a drunkard's fancies. "'I'll be happy again.' "'Paul Grave, you're not naturally a coward.' "'I'm not so sure. "'No man can tell till he's done with. "'In every man and in every woman "'there's a coward somewhere waiting for a chance.' But you're not, naturally, the dirty kind of coward who flies to drink to hide his funk. I don't do that. Then why do you drink? Mr. Palgrave shrugged his shoulders. Because there's something calling. I've always drunk, ever since I've known you and long before. Some of my happiest hours have been spent in the company of a bottle and Sally. In those days I wasn't always drinking. I would other things to do. Now what have I? Shut up. I don't care for reading, I have never willingly read a book in my life, and I never shall. I've no, what are called intellectual resources, which console a man who's confined to the house. The things I can do and want to do, I can't do. I prowl, 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 from morn to morn, upstairs and downstairs, all the day and most of the night, and in the intervals I drink. I do not drink because I'm the kind of coward you suggest, but because there's something in me which likes drink and because I've nothing else to do. Supposing I prove you innocent, what then? Then I'll marry Sally, if she'll have me. Sally, will you dare to venture on a drunkard for a husband?' For the first time Miss Scarlet spoke. She was sitting on the corner of a table, swinging her feet in the air. "'I'll marry you all right, old boy, if ever I get the chance.' "'But if this sanguine Mr. Earle doesn't prove my innocence and they hang me—' "'I'll go with you to the gallows and they can hang me too, so long as I'm your wife.' "'But the misfortune is that they won't hang you for what I did.' "'I'm not so sure of that. There's such a thing as being guilty after the event. I believe they hang for that.' She spoke with a cheerfulness which, as before, was suspicious. When she was letting Rupert Earle out of the garden gate, she asked him an anxious question. "'Well, do you think he did it?' "'I'm sure he didn't.' "'Sure.' "'After what you heard him say?' "'I don't care what he said. "'I know he didn't do it.' "'How can you know? "'So sure as that?' Instead of answering her question, he said something which filled her with evident surprise. "'He's a lucky man.' "'Lucky? "'You call him lucky? "'Then who's unlucky?' "'I call no man unlucky "'who knows a woman who'll go through hell for him.' "'If a woman cares for a man, "'she cares for him, doesn't she?' IF SHE CARES FOR HIM, SHE DOESN'T CARE WHAT SHE DOES FOR HIM. IT'S ONLY THE LUCKY MAN WHO HAS A WOMAN WHO CARES FOR HIM LIKE THAT. RUPERT EARLE SEEMED TO BE IN NO HURRY TO REACH HIS OWN PART OF THE WORLD WHEN HE HAD LEFT THAT STRANGE ABODE BEHIND. HE QUICKLY LEARNED THAT, AS MISS Scarlett HAD SAID, IT WAS NOT BY ANY MEANS SO REMOTE AS IT APPEARED. HE HAD NOT GONE VERY FAR BEFORE HE FOUND HIMSELF amidst A WILDERNESS OF HOUSES. He wandered along street after street, without knowing where he was or caring to inquire, as if his thoughts absorbed him to the exclusion of all else. His night's amusement was taking a singular form. At last it did dawn on him that he might as well get some idea of where he was. He looked about in search of some familiar landmark, but there was none. He was in a street of small houses, a long street, badly lighted. Most of the houses were in darkness, as if the inhabitants were in bed, He looked at his watch. It was nearly two o'clock. "'Great Potiphar! What an hour! Susan will be wondering where I am. She'll be taking it for granted that I'm having a most uproarious time. How sometimes appearances are against a man. How am I going to find my way to Kite Street, Wandsworth?' There was not a soul in sight. He walked to the end of the long street, turned to the left, then to the right, without meeting a living creature.' "'Then, on a sudden, he found himself in a great highway "'in which there were some signs of life. "'Some carts were crawling slowly along in the distance "'going, he presumed, to one of the morning markets. "'He looked in vain for a cab. Tram lines ran down the centre of the road. "'Near him was a standard carrying an electric wire, "'but there was nothing to show that the cars were running. "'All at once someone approached from behind. "'Apparently from the street he had just come out of, "'a short man who went sauntering by as if in no hurry.' "'Mr. Earle hailed him as he passed. "'Can you tell me where I'm likely to find a cab?' "'The man stopped to answer. "'You're not likely to find a cab anywhere round here. "'People in this part of the world haven't got the money for that kind of thing. "'They don't use cabs. "'But the tramcars, they keep running all through the night. "'If you walk on either way, one will catch you up before you've gone very far.' "'Something in the speaker's voice struck Rupert Earle as familiar.' "'Haven't I met you somewhere before?' "'Yes, Mr. Earl, you have, "'and very uncalled for your behaviour was to me. "'Most uncalled for. "'You're the man who spoke to me tonight at the music hall.' "'Yes, Mr. Earl, I am, "'and the way you spoke to me back again "'surprised me more than a little. "'Straight it did. "'What are you doing here?' "'Why, Mr. Earl, I'm strolling along.' Are "'Are you dogging my footsteps?' DOGGING YOUR FOOTSTEPS. WELL, THERE. CAN'T I WALK ABOUT THE STREETS OF LONDON WITHOUT HAVING A CHARGE LIKE THAT CHUCKED AT MY HEAD? IF I CAN'T, THINGS ARE COMING TO A PRETTY PITCH. THEY ARE THAT. IS IT ANY BUSINESS OF MINE IF YOU GOES AND PAYS CALLS ON MR. WALTER PALGRAVE, IS IT? HOW DO YOU KNOW? STEADY, STEADY ON. Here's someone coming along who takes a lot more interest in Mr. W.P. than I do. You shut your mouth till he's gone by. A heavy tread came stamping along the pavement. A big, loosely hung man, with something about his clothes and bearing which was redolent of the country, came swinging by. At the sight of the little man he paused, addressing him with a significance which was very like a threat. So it is you, is it? I thought I saw you. "'Up to your games again.' "'The little man's manner, as he replied, savoured unmistakably of impudence. "'Oh, yes, Mr. Wilkins, it's me, all right, and very glad I am to see you, Mr. Wilkins, "'though it is a little latish. "'Hope you're well, and all the good folks down Woodcott way. "'How's Farmer Bates Sow, the one I mean, what you thought was stole?' There was apparently something esoteric in the allusion to Farmer Bates' sow which angered the person addressed. "'All right, my lad, smart, aren't you? Those laugh longest who laugh last. Next time you get put away it will be for a bit longer than you think.' Without waiting for a retort, the big man stamped off, swinging a little from side to side as he walked. So soon as he was out of hearing, the little man asked Mr. Earl, "'Do you know who that is?' "'I do not.' HE KNOWS WHO YOU ARE. IT WAS TO GET A GOOD LOOK AT YOU HE STOPPED TO TALK TO ME. A NICE MESS YOU'VE MADE OF THINGS. HAVE I? IN WHAT WAY? WHO IS YOUR FRIEND? FRIEND? MY FRIEND? MY CRICKY? HIM A FRIEND OF MINE? HIM? THAT'S GEORGE WILKINS, WHAT'S A POLICEMAN DOWN AT WOODCOTT? THEY'VE SET HIM TO FIND THE PARTY WHAT KILLED OLD CULVER. "'He's something out of the common run of country policemen, "'and they seem to have found it out. "'Before we're much older, he'll find the party that killed John Culver, "'as sure as your name's Rupert Earle and mine ain't.' "'Mr. Earle stood to look at Mr. Wilkins, "'who must have been moving quicker than he seemed to be "'since he was already nearly out of sight. "'When Mr. Earle turned to look for the little man, he had vanished, "'having probably taken advantage of the other's abstraction "'to beat a strategic retreat round the corner.' End of chapters 22 and 23